bringing you the truth behind the news. Welcome to The New American. Welcome, everyone. I'm Paul Dragu. We're glad you can join us. Here at The New American, we take the most important news stories, we strip away the propaganda, and we bring you the truth. And because of that, we are one of the most censored publications in America. So if you enjoy this show, please share these episodes with others. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to discuss the combustible situation between China and Taiwan and the massive potential it has to affect the lives of every American. But first, we're going to start here on the home front, where we're 10 months away from the most consequential election in our lifetime. Well, that's not hyperbole. In three short years, the Biden administration has flooded the nation with millions of migrants. It has incentivized war wars around the world and it has weaponized the Justice Department to jail and threaten common Americans for the simple crime of being conservatives. Another term like this will likely plunge this nation into its darkest period ever. So joining me today is editor-in-chief of the New American Magazine, Gary Benoit, and reporter for the New American, his first time uh, on the show, David D. Ritter. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. So, Gary, I wanted to take your, uh, get your take. You've been around the block for a while. I know I don't mean to make you sound old. I am saying that out of respect. You have reported for decades. You've watched politics. You've obviously been there um, reporting on every election. Would you agree that this is the most consequential election in our lifetime? Yes. And, uh, and I think you indicated in your introduction, Paul, maybe even in American history, which would include the, the Civil War. Yeah, what do you and, think uh, of that? I wanted to get your take uh, on I, that. Uh, I, uh, I've been turning that over in my mind these last uh, few seconds since you, you said it. Uh, <laughs> because the Civil War certainly tore the, you know, the country uh, apart. Um, it has the potential, I, I think, of getting that bad. But I think it's also avoidable. Uh, it's not uh, inevitable. I do feel, Paul, this nation is at a crossroads. That we can get back to the Constitution and save our country... Or we can fail to do that and uh, find ourselves living under uh, a full-blown tyranny. Yes, yeah. Now, David, you were recently in Iowa this past weekend. Uh, the Iowa caucus is on Monday. You talked to quite a few people. You attended some town halls. Uh, we weren't able to get in the, in the, the Trump rally there or whatnot. But uh, you got kind of a vibe, at least in Iowa, what the people are kind of concerned about, what their questions are with some of the, um, of the candidates. What, uh, what did you get as far as vibes about Trump, Trump supporters? Again, I know that that wasn't the main thing you spent your time on, but the, the time you did spend there, um, how are Iowans reacting and how do they feel about the Trump, uh, Trump candidate and others? So the locations at the town halls were independents and other more rural communities. A lot of farmers attended. They had a lot of questions on policy as far as farming and agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But some, some more personal questions uh, addressing the uh, faith, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy uh, being Hindu, and then also a few questions on um, that were brought up at multiple town halls about him, his diet. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. So now we're going to, to, to Vivek there. Uh, now, he oh. seems to be soaring somewhat, at least in the media. We've seen so many um, clips of him, and we've seen him sparring with 
reporters. You actually spent some time with Vivek or his campaign, I guess, right? Or his town halls. Uh, that is interesting because um, you're saying one of the most often asked questions or concerns, it seems like, among Americans when it comes to him is his faith, his Hindu faith, huh? Yes, a uh, few people asked that question. Uh, they um, also asked him about they, one person asked if he was a vegan and he corrected them, told them he was a vegetarian yeah. and uh, he liked cheese, but uh, okay. they, uh, they wanted, they were curious about that. Uh, but yeah, they, and, um, they and, were curious about him as not just his policy, but also him as a person. Yeah, uh, because yeah. he's kind of an unknown. He doesn't have a track record in politics. What was there? Um, did you sense any real hesitancy or resistance because of his Hindu faith? I think he answered the questions uh, very well, and the what did he say? Uh, he, long story short, the gist of what he said was uh, he is as president would have an oath to the Constitution, following the Constitution, mm -hmm. and his personal choices would not affect how he defends and yeah. how he'd run his his uh, administration yeah imagine that would affect his being a vegetarian too uh, he's not going to outlaw meat just because he doesn't yeah is that was yeah. that the concern for the one farm? of the farmers uh she uh mentioned that her and her husband are farmers and and that was a question i don't know how serious she was but yeah. she asked if uh his um being a vegetarian would affect um yeah affect his policy for agriculture and farming and he uh said it's a personal choice and that as president he wouldn't enforce his his dietary choices on other people i find that so ironic because the people who are trying to shove these um you know fake meat or completely you know they're vilifying cows and 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 beef and things like that they all eat meat you know these these globalists, these uh, control oligarchs, as uh, Seamus Bruner calls them, you know, from Bill Gates to whatever, be Bezos and all these folks and Zuckerberg. With the, uh, the the word on the street is they love themselves a good good uh, filet mignon and things like that. But then when it comes to us little peasants, they they don't want us to eat um, to eat meat. Gary, let's go back on the on the faith. Um, element there that's always a concern for americans and that too i think has a very ironic element to it that being the fact that in our opinion anyway i don't think we've had quite a few presidents who despite what they say outward have been have truly lived their convictions i mean there's a guy in the white house who says he's uh he's a catholic, he's a catholic. yet he's for yep. abortion he he's a he he's, he seems to be a liar a big time liar sure. He is destroying this nation. So it's like, what role does Catholicism well, based on his play? own policies, based on um, uh, the beliefs that uh, uh, that he utters, he's a Catholic in name, name only. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's very judgmental of you there, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, but again, it, it's just going by what he's saying. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, I'm not going to try to uh, say what's in his heart. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, obviously we we don't uh, know that. At least, not we. you know, we can... Mm -hmm. Maybe project the lines, but there is no question that when somebody says uh, I'm for abortion and I'm a Catholic, you cannot be both. Period. Wow, you tell him, Gary. But and you know, one of the most um, I remember during the George W. years, George W. He would talk a lot about how Jesus saved him. He was, mm -hmm. I guess, he was an alcoholic. I don't know if you remember that, David. Uh, and uh, 
I actually believe George W. probably meant that. But George W.'s years were also when we got things like the Patriot Act. Mm -hmm. uh, we got new wars in the Middle East. I believe that's also Afghanistan, what may have started during those years. So I guess all that to say is like, I'm not sure. I mean, I would love to have someone who, ha who, who has true convictions and who is guided by those... But we look back on the years and it doesn't seem like those convictions, whether they're true or not, have made a whole lot of a difference when it comes to governing, when it comes to policies. We haven't become freer over the years. In fact, we become less free, uh, as we can see. And so all that to say with Vivek, well, I don't know, is it going to make a difference that he's, that he's Hindu? But, you know, but if he adheres to the Constitution, that may be better. Yeah, exactly. that's the key. He yeah. said, uh, he said he's running for president. He's not running for pastor. So. <laughs> yeah, I know he says, he says that, that quite a bit. And I've seen videos of those. He does. Um, those are questions that he gets quite a bit. You know, after we come back, I, I want to talk about this, this, uh, white supremacist that apparently Vivek is accused of being. There's been a lot of footage. Well, to be clear, white supremacists in quotes. Because the person oh, yes. who's being accused of being a white supremacist is not a white supremacist. Right, right. And, and you know, they've dragged that that term through the mud. Now, pretty much anyone who's not apparently left of Mitt Romney or whoever is, is a white supremacist. It's, it's quite sad because there probably are real white supremacists and they should be denounced. But anyway, we're going to come back and we're going to get into that conversation. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence proclaims God-given rights, and we intend to protect them. Working with people like you for over 50 years, preserving freedom and building a better tomorrow, safeguarding the Constitution by limiting government power. We are restoring liberties, educating voters, and leading the freedom movement. Join with us. United, we will defend our rights. We are all Americans. We are the John Birch Society. For more non-propaganda news and in-depth analysis from the New American Magazine, make sure you have a subscription to our twice-monthly print edition of the magazine. The New American Magazine has been telling the truth and accurately projecting policy and cultural trends since 1985. We are the official magazine of the John Birch Society, which was founded in 1958 to stop the New World Order. No other magazine has been as accurate and for as long about where policy and culture were heading than the New American. You get a subscription online at thenewamerican.com. Just hit the magazine tab on top and then hit subscribe on the drop down. If you prefer, you can call for a subscription. 1-800-727-8783, Monday through Friday from 8 to 5 Central Time. That's 800-727-8783. Welcome back, folks. So I want to get into this thing about Vivek apparently being a white supremacist or friends with white supremacists. Gary, can you quickly explain how this whole thing started so we have some context? Well, first of all, this was a smear of Congressman Steve King, former Congressman Steve King, that was uh, uh, that was resurrected in order to smear Ramaswamy. 
because former Congressman Steve King recently endorsed Ramaswamy for, for president. Mm. And it goes back to 2019, a quote that the New York Times attributed to Steve King. And here's the quote uh, from the New York Times. White nationalists, white supremacists, Western civilization. How did that language become offensive? Why did I sit in classes teaching me about the merits of our history and our civilization? And so the way New York Times, the, the way they presented the quote uh, was to say that uh, he was supporting white nationalism, white supremacy, as well as Western civilization. But what Steve King says he was saying uh, was they were talking about the use of language and how so often white supremacy and, and um, uh, white nationalism, that terminology is used to uh, frame, uh, to uh, smear conservatives. And, uh, and then he brought up Western civilization yeah. and said, uh, you know, uh, why is it that that language uh, has become offensive? He was referring specifically to Western civilization. And to underscore uh, that that is true, um, and of course I think you can believe Steve King anyway over the New York over Times. Over the New York but, Times, but any to, day. Any day. But to underscore that that's true, he, he pointed to another part of the quote from the New York Times why did I sit in classes teaching me about the merits of our history and our civilization? The Times quotes him as saying that. Mm -hmm. And Steve King said, you know, no American sat in classes teaching them about the merits of white supremacy. Right, right. Or white nationalism. So, so what happened then is because Steve King endorsed Ramaswamy, he gets, Ramaswamy gets attacked right. with, by this, you know, this, this proxy smear. Uh, how did Ramaswamy react? When asked, uh, he said that the New York Times quote was a lie, um, and he said that Steve King is a patriot, and yeah. he's a good person, yeah. and he, he just outright yeah. just said it's not true. And mm. um, I, I mean, I met Steve King a couple of months back. We hung out in, in mm -hmm. Des Moines during the leadership conference, and I got to say, um, no, there was no inkling of him right. being a, a white supremacist. Now, of course, they've dragged that... they've. They've so dragged that word onto everything that it has unfortunately, I think, lost its true meaning, with, which is white supremacist. Now anyone, I mean, everything apparently is a white supremacy. Let's go to Haley and then, and then Trump. Now, Haley is obviously being propped up as the establishment choice. What did you see, David, as far as Haley goes down in Iowa? Was there a big rally with tons of Haley supporters? No one really talked about her. The events that I went to, no one was excited about her. It was a lot of people who were maybe in support of Trump and curious about Vivek, mm. but not a lot of enthusiasm about uh, Nikki. Well, there was an event that was uh, that she was supposed to have that was canceled as well, huh? They claim it was because of the snow. That was a Monday morning event. Yeah. Um, Did they but, cancel other events because of the snow? Nope. Vivek <laughs> had a packed room same day so well, this particular event as i understand it not a uh, single voter uh showed up for it and, and it was canceled uh after um the event was scheduled to start yeah yeah after uh, no one showed up they uh so they that, said that it was begs weather. the question because i know you were trying to uh, get the pulse of what uh, people in iowa were, were thinking but when you have an event for uh um uh for her you know for nikki haley and and uh of course, you weren't at that event yourself, but nonetheless, if somebody were to go to that event to find out what her supporters are thinking, 
How can you find out when that a single single supporter shows up? Yeah, that makes your job very <laughs> difficult, David. I'm sorry we put you in that position. <laughs> now, th talk about big crowds. Let's go to to Trump. Now, I haven't been to a Trump rally in years. Back in my reporting days in Montana, I went to a couple, and it was absolutely chaos. It was it was I guess some would consider it good chaos. Um, the, the whole town, uh, you know, especially Great Falls, when I was in Great Falls, I think the next day the Tribune had the headline, Trump mania hits Great Falls. And it truly was. Uh, that was one of the few times that the media told the truth. But of course, that's Gannett. It's not necessarily New York Times or Washington Post. What did you notice as far as Trump's presence? I know that we didn't apply quickly enough or whatever, and we, we didn't get in there. But obviously, did you see his presence? What did you notice as far as the Trump presence in Iowa? A lot of people are, are Trump supporters. They're familiar with him. Um, kind of the... Was it still, I mean, was it like hordes of people like it normally is? I, I, it sounds like the event was sold out as usual, right? Or or packed. I don't think it's a sellout because he doesn't sell tickets. The events are long lines. Uh, line starts forming at 8. People yeah. get there even before then, multiple parking lots and overflow parking. Yeah. Uh, there's going to be, at every Trump event, there's going to be hundreds of people that aren't able to get in. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, the ones I've been to, it was thousands. Uh, the ones I've been to, it was always more people who were not able to get in than were able to get in. Did you have a sense of kind of the same uh, fervency and excitement about Trump that there may have been in previous years or... Uh, how would you characterize the the sentiment there? More more of a sense of urgency with um, all the lawfare that's going on. Mm. People are are concerned about that. Oh, really? What did, did people say anything specific regarding that? There's some fear that he, with him being excluded from the Colorado ballot and Maine as well, um, kind of voters want to know how that's going to play out with the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah. Well. And we're kind of all all waiting on on that to see how that turns out. Now we just did a story. What is it? Yesterday or the day before? Maybe the day before, Gary, where we had that law expert yes, from Harvard. Joe, Joe, uh, well, yeah. No, no, no. The I was going to say Joe Wilberton. We had our own expert. Yeah, yeah. Too. We had our own expert, <laughs> and and that was just so asinine. I mean, essentially, his advice was in order to, I guess, avoid. Well, the, yeah, the, the guy from uh, was do the Harvard wrong or Yale? thing. Might have been Yale, but yeah, yeah, the Yale yeah, guy. That, that was asinine. Yeah, yeah, it's like do the the Supreme should do the wrong thing because it would be the right thing, and that kind of tells you, you how the left it. thinks. What what kind of a person who supposedly is a supporter of law uh, would would say that? A leftist. Yeah, a that leftist. you got to do the wrong thing in order to do the uh, the right thing. Talk about the ends justifying the means. Yes, yes, and and I think that perfectly reflects how these people think. Uh, those of us who who still you know have some sort of moral compass and right and wrong. We have such a hard time uh, dealing and pre uh, preventing the lawfare and all the stuff that they throw at us because we, we're just not as uh, demented as they right. are. But for those who didn't see that episode, though, uh, I think in essence his position was that you cannot uh, uh, vote for Trump because if you do so and if he were elected president— that would create a constitutional crisis. Oh my, how terrible. Yeah, yeah. But it sounds like people, I mean, based on what you saw, that's probably where most of the excitement was. Is that fair to say? Was yes. Trump still? And Vivek, Vivek's even, his response to that was, he doesn't think that the powers that be are going to let Trump get anywhere near the White House, oh, especially wow. with the, the lawfare. And that's where he's 
angling himself as the candidate, the choice, the anti-establishment. Get in there in case they, they throw Trump in jail or, or out him or whatever. Exactly. Because was, it's, it's him. If Trump, worst case scenario, it'd be Trump, DeSantis, and Haley. And yeah. voters have to make that choice between that those That is three. really interesting. So Vivek is basically somewhat almost assuming that Trump's, he's banking on Trump being thrown in jail or, or not being available somehow. Or just the election not going his way, not being able One way to or win. Another, huh? Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you, David. After this, Steve's going to join us, and we're going to talk about Taiwan, China. Imprisonment, forced labor, permanent separation from my family, perhaps death. I knew what could happen to people who were caught trying to defect, but the watchtowers stood yards away. The possibility of a new life in a different world, one without tyranny, was within sight. The West. I thought of the rewards no longer crushed under the boot of communism. I would work and make money, no longer restrained by the chains of collectivism. I would say what I wanted, without fear of spies and informants nearby. I would be free. The frozen rain and Romanian mud sipped through my gloves and cloths. I fantasized about the fire burning in the wood stove of my parents' home, but I pushed those thoughts from my mind, closed my eyes, and waited for the cover of the darkness. Get Defector, a true story of tyranny, liberty, and purpose by Mark Hobavkovich with Paul Dragu a thrilling page-turner that will remind you how precious yet vulnerable freedom is. Available at shopjbs.org or Amazon. For a limited time, get 20% off your entire order using promo code DEFECTOR20 when you purchase DEFECTOR at shopjbs.org. The New American has just released our latest bookazine, a collection of articles on self-reliance. It's called Self-Reliance, Foundation of Freedom. Without individual responsibility and without the ability to take care of ourselves without government help, we cannot be free. In this Polish Collector's Edition, we have articles on a number of important topics, including the self-sufficiency of the founders, preparing for a worst-case scenario, firearm self-reliance, building a wood shack, and the importance of community, among many other topics. Now, the authors of the articles are experts in their fields. We encourage you to get a copy. You can order your copy at thenewamerican.com forward slash shop, or you can call our office at 800-727-8783. However you do it, make sure you get your copy of Self-Reliance, The Foundation of Freedom. Welcome back, folks. So Steve and Gary have something to show us. Well, at least for our viewing audience, uh, for the radio audience, we'll need to uh, explain this, Paul. Please do. But... Uh, what we're showing is a uh, a letter, a framed letter that hangs in my office that, that has historical significance. And also, it's a letter that reads as if it could have been written today. It applies so much to what is happening today. It is a letter that Chiang Kai-shek, uh, who was the president of the Republic of China on Taiwan, uh, in fact, you could even say the founder of that republic uh, on Taiwan, uh, when they fled the, the takeover of, of mainland China by the communists, 
a letter Chiang Kai-shek had written to Robert Welch, the founder of the John Birch Society, back in 1955, before Robert Welch even founded the John Birch Society. At the time, Robert Welch was the president of the National Association of Manufacturers. And uh, Steve, uh, you suggested that we display this, so I think it's very appropriate <laughs> that you read the letter. Okay, so just a, a, a tiny bit of, of additional background. So, so Mr. Welch, was a, before he founded the Birch Society, was a very successful businessman, a candy manufacturer to be precise. And at a certain juncture, he was the head of the, the, he was in the board of directors of the National Association of Manufacturers of the United States. Yes, okay, so this is an English translation of a letter, which we also have the Chinese version, written in very elegant Chinese traditional characters. And it's dated August 26, 1955, and it says as follows, Dear Mr. Welch, in response to your request, it gives me pleasure to send a message of greeting to the board of directors of the National Association of Manufacturers of the United States. These are grave times. I am sure that I shall have the sympathetic ear of the members of the board if my message is on the serious side. Leaders of international communism, in pushing vigorously for the moment their peace offensive, are not giving up their ambition and plans for world conquest. If they soft-pedal conquest by arms today, they have not relented their efforts at subversion and infiltration. Nor have they given up any advantage for the prosecution of arms when it suits their convenience. Division of any country into two has not contributed to the ease of solution of the respective problems involved. Germany, Korea, and Vietnam have been divided, but the problems have not been solved. Postponing the ultimate solution of these problems may add to the gravity of the situation. Coexistence has to be a mutual effort. When one of the two parties to coexistence has de declared its determination to wipe out the other and has published its plans for the realization of that aim, the other party ignores this determination and these plans at the peril of its very existence. In submitting these thoughts for the consideration of the leaders of United States production, I wish them a very successful conference. Sincerely yours, Chiang Kai-shek, directed to Mr. Robert H.W. Welch, Jr., President. That is so cool. When I saw that, I was like, oh, we have to bring that in in this conversation. Um, what, do you, what parallels do you guys see between what Chiang Kai-shek is saying to Robert Welch and what we're seeing today? I mean, I especially picked up on the whole idea of world conquest, uh, this communist uh, quest for world conquest or whatnot. Uh, Steve, what do you what do you parallel? What parallels do you see? Well, aside from the fact that obviously, with the passage of almost seventy years, well, more than seventy years since that was that letter was written, there have been a couple of changes. There are no longer two Vietnams. There's one Vietnam, and there are no longer two Germanys. There's one Germany. Now, in the case of Germany, nominally at least, the communist part eventually fell, became capitalist. But I mean, the story is a little more complicated than that. In the case of Vietnam, it's not so complicated. The communists won. And there's a single communist government over North and South Vietnam, what, what used to be North and South Vietnam. And of course, but as for the rest, I, I think his comments that, well, you know, if we just pretend that these problems don't exist, it will make it uh, worse in the long run. And he, of course, also mentions the Koreas, the two Koreas, which are still two Koreas, okay? The situation there is essentially unchanged, except that now North Korea has nuclear weapons and ICBMs. So it's actually much worse now than it was in the 1950s. And of course, unstated but strongly implied was the situation of the two Chinas, mainland China and Taiwan. Again, he considered it to be a grave peril in the 50s. And indeed, I mean, there were a number of shooting wars between Taiwan and the mainland in the 50s. 
um, right at the moment the guns are silent, but may, the mainland China has become immensely more powerful. And it's largely because of this decades-long self-delusion in the part of the West that, oh, well, now China's going to be nice. They've changed. So let's open to them for them on their behalf the cornucopia of Western capitalism so that we can all get rich together. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing the folly of that. Yeah. Had people listened to individuals like Chiang Kai-shek who understood from firsthand experience the true nature of communism in general. And I mean, there are some differences between you know, Chinese communism and, and, and Russian or Bolshevik communism, but they're really all of a piece. They all share this fanatical, and I would say in the world history, almost unexampled zeal to destroy all other existing orders and supplant it with with yeah. their with their you know secular utopian totalitarian you know dis- yeah. uh, really dystopian state the Orwellian vision that has not changed in the slightest and if if anything I should say you know we almost should thank Xi Jinping for pulling the mask off again and showing the world through his own coarse uh, brutish behavior reminding us that communism has not changed one whit. Of course, history has repeated itself in that regard because I remember after Ronald Reagan became president, he was elected in 1980, and uh, in the early 1980s, he referred to communist China as a so-called, he used that terminology, so-called communist country. And of course, later on, Tiananmen Square occurred. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was an example of the mask coming off when uh, those poor people, when Tiananmen Square were, were mm-hmm. slaughtered and they were rolled over by uh, by, uh, by Chinese communist uh, uh, tanks. And, and uh, as a consequence of that, we suspended relations, but we did not uh, end them. And, and so we did have all this accommodation, uh, the accommodation that Chiang Kai-shek warned about. And uh, so look at where we are today. The problem did not go away, just as Chiang Kai-shek had, had said. And, of course, something else to keep in mind, too, is that communism would not have come to power in China to begin with if it were not for U.S. foreign policy and the foreign policy of other nations. And uh, the fall of China really did not occur so much in China itself uh, as it did uh, uh, thousands of miles away in Yalta during a wartime peace, uh, excuse me, wartime conference uh, that was held with Stalin, uh, with Churchill, and with Roosevelt. And uh, secretly, there was uh, a concession that was made. In fact, there were a number of concessions. But one of those concessions that were uh, that were made uh, for Mao Zedong, the leader of the, uh, uh, of the, the communist forces, uh, was to turn Manchuria over to the, uh, the communists. Mm-hmm. And uh, other concessions as well. And uh, I'd like to, to uh, share a quote from somebody who, uh, by no means, we would consider today to be uh, uh, a staunch uh, conservative, uh, a quote from John F. Kennedy, who at the time was a young uh, congressman when he uttered this quote. Uh, this goes back to January 25th, 1949, again when he was in Congress before he became president. And he said, the responsibility for the failure of our foreign policy in the Far East rests squarely with the White House and the Department of State. Wow! Yeah, so that's a that's a powerful quote. So we we've created a monster, right? In in China, uh, we've we've got lots of documentation. We've written a ton of articles on that. Obviously, Kissinger was was in the middle of that. 
We're going to come back and we are going to have more on this conversation about China and Taiwan. The John Birch Society has been working tirelessly since 1958 to preserve freedom, safeguard the Constitution, and restore our God-given rights. We continually educate voters and lead the freedom movement. Join us as we work against a tyrannical one-world government. United as one, we can defeat this conspiracy against a free America. JBS founder Robert Welch said, education is our total strategy and truth our only weapon. Join us in restoring this great nation. Welcome back, folks. So, Steve, you wanted to add a little bit more about communism here. Well, it's only because we don't hear that word so much now. Okay, and and most people say, well, isn't that ironic? Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, Gary mentioned that people referred to, you know, to Reagan referred to China as a so-called communist country, and, and at this point now, we talk about the radical left, we talk about Marxism, particularly, you know, cultural Marxism, and these are accurate enough terms, but it begs the question: What is the relationship of communism with these other things? Are they the same? Mm-hmm. And here's the simple answer. Communism is radical leftism or Marxism that has won. That's all it is. It's Marxism implemented, right? Yes. It is what, what happens when Marxism and radical leftism, which we're experiencing here in the United States writ large now, okay, mm-hmm. it's what happens when they win. Communism is the end state. All right. And that, so, so this is, and so you know, the people of Cambodia, the people of North Korea, the people of Vietnam, of Laos, of China, of all of the countries that made up the former Soviet Union, the Eastern Bloc, Cuba, now increasingly Venezuela, Nicaragua, all know what that means by personal experience. I, as I've mentioned many times, I spent the first eight years of my life in, in communist Romania, and I got to say, there's at least three. Uh, parallels between what we're seeing develop here and there. First of all, there's the church infiltration element. Now, obviously, we it's not as bad here uh, as it was there, but we saw this with Catholics. We see uh, the enemies of the... There's another documentary Trevor Loudon did where he documents very well how the Marxists have infiltrated and they're watering down the church. So that's one. Another one, speech censorship. Obviously, we're seeing we're seeing most of this on the internet front, but we're also seeing people lose their jobs and things like that because they don't believe in insane things or because they have the wrong political view. And then, of course, the lawfare, the lawfare. We've we've been covering the J Sixers now. They use these uh, these bunk arguments to throw political prisoners, uh, political enemies, or opposition in jail. This is all things that the communists did in Romania and the Soviet bloc. And this is all thing, these are all elements that we're seeing being implemented in the United States of America. So uh, I think anyone who's listening and watching and who, who still doesn't understand, we are in the middle of a communist Marxist coup. Do you guys disagree with that? I agree completely. Right. And w- I mean, right now we can still, we can still, we still enjoy the luxury of calling it For radical leftism, cultural Marxism. But if it wins we'll get communism here as surely as they did in China. Now, I mean, the point of this discussion today was kind of to, to talk about why Taiwan is important in view of the fact that, that today, Saturday over there, but it's Friday here, uh, the, the, Taiwan is holding elections as a free, and I hate to use the word democratic, but you know what I mean, a free country. It's a republic, 
and one of the freest countries in the world, except that it's not recognized officially as a country by most other. The largest country in the world that rec still recognizes Taiwan is the South American nation of, of Paraguay. And so the United States has this weird relationship, and we don't have time to go into all the particulars of it. But the idea is we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. We want to continue to have relations with mainland China because of all of the perceived financial and economic advantages of, of our trade relationship and perhaps indeed other aspects of our relationship as well, while at the same time maintaining this partial fiction that we're these great paladins of freedom and therefore we're going to stand, and we meaning the official we, all right? Uh, Gary mentioned earlier, we are in fact largely culpable for the fall of, of well, the fall of the government of free China on the mainland and the forced retreat to the island of Taiwan, okay? And so that state of affairs persists to this day. The problem is that now, China is, mainland China is telegraphing that they're preparing to literally fulfill the promise of decades, the threat of decades of actually invading the island of Taiwan, which may or may not be militarily feasible, although I do think that certainly annex, annexing outlying areas, particularly the Kemoi and Matsu areas right on the coast of, of mainland China, perhaps the Pratas Island in the South China Sea, not far from, uh, from may be a, a very viable first step with what China has now. They've tried in the past to seize those things and, and, and have not succeeded. But China has a good deal more military might, again, built up largely thanks to trade with the West and in particular with the United States, the money that the US and I think Germany is also a major culpable actor here in investing in China. So that's what we're faced with. But I think what we need to address in the time remaining is, should this matter to the United States? A lot of people in our audience our viewers and listeners are probably inclined to say, well, you know, it's really none of our business. We should just cut Taiwan loose uh, or, or wind up our affairs and let them take care of it themselves. You know, we should be non-interventionists as the founders enjoined and so forth and so on. And there's a lot of merit to that argument, but there are other arguments that could be made as well. So, How will this, how will what happens between China and Taiwan, what are the worst possible outcomes for Americans? Worst possible outcome, of course, would be China successfully annexing Taiwan. It would be disastrous. We know what they would do. We've seen what they've done in, in Hong Kong in the last couple of years, emboldened by the, the chaos of the, uh, with the, of the COVID period mm -hmm. and all of that. Okay? They, they figure, okay, we have nothing to lose. We're going we're gonna to do what we've wanted to do for the last 20-odd years, but haven't had the guts to do it. They've done it. So we know it would happen. All right? It would, it would, be, it would be horrific. It would, it would result in a massive diminution of U.S. standing around the world, which is something all of the, you know, the, the neocon and globalist types always like to trot well, out are you as, saying the, this as the major issue. But the, but the real issue is that it would be a colossal victory for global communism. This is important because, as, as Chiang Kai-shek pointed out in the letter that we read earlier in, 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 in the last segment, we, we consistently fail to understand the, the nature of communism, and more so now that the old Soviet threat has supposedly gone away, because rather than having that, you know, us versus them thing, the communists are now in our midst, masquerading as radical leftist, cultural Marxist, progressive, woke, all the rest of this stuff, carrying out their revolution before our very eyes. And so, but, but we don't see that monolithic threat with all the nuclear weapons pointed with us against us as was the case in the Cold War. So people are tempted to say, well, you know, this is just it. But, but the mentality of communists, wherever they have achieved ascendancy, as is the case in mainland China, 
is unchanged. They are bent on world conquest. This isn't a Chinese thing or a Russian thing or a Cuban thing. It's a communist thing. It is part and parcel of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism. They are our implacable foe. If they take Taiwan, okay, they will not stop there. All right. The, the, I know people think, well, the old domino theory has been discredited and all that, but they won't. Like it or not, we have territories in the Western Pacific. You know, what, what's going to happen to Guam and the Marianas Islands? And obviously the Philippines, our ally, well, people say, well, we can cut them loose too, let them take care of themselves. And I do think countries well, like Japan should be able that, to do that. That should be the plan, though, but uh, it really is complicated in this instance, number one, because communist China would not exist to begin with if it weren't for U.S. foreign policy. Yeah. And number two, uh, because we we promised uh, a nuclear umbrella, so to speak, to uh, right. protect and that's, uh, Taiwan. That's and possible, right? We so, get sucked into this, right? right? So we have to deal with today, but we have we should also be planning for the future uh, as to what our foreign policy should look look like in the future. But, but, and, but, but will the future involve essentially saying to American Samoa and Guam and Northern Marianas and ultimately the Hawaiian Islands, sorry guys, you know we're going to go back to you know the American mainland and that that was all a mistake. Which, I mean, in hindsight, it probably was, right. you know, starting with the annexation of Hawaii but, and all the rest of that stuff. But regarding uh, you know? Taiwan uh, specifically, uh, you know, in my opinion, uh, we should let Taiwan know that at a particular date, uh, we're not going to be providing that uh, nuclear umbrella anymore to give Taiwan time to uh, prepare. Well, we haven't, I assume we haven't let them know that because that's not the case. If mm -mm. China invades, we're in, aren't we, Steve? At this point, yes, although technically we still have an out because unlike with Japan, South Korea, and the Philippines, we're not treaty-bound to, ta to mm. Taiwan anymore. But that's because we unilaterally backed out on the treaty after professing our allegiance you know, and, and fealty to Taiwan and freedom and all this. So we are a very perfidious ally to have, as mm. many countries who fought against communists like the, the Hungarians in 1956 can attest. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. As usual, we will keep our eyes on this. I know, Steve, you're... You got your pulse on this. And so we're going to keep our eyes on this and we'll keep reporting. And thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of the New American Daily. Remember to visit thenewamerican.com for more truth behind the news. And please join us again on Monday.